All right. Uh, hello there. Hello, you guys. Uh, welcome to the recovery crew here at Deep Waters Recovery. I'm Dr. Bob Bear, and uh, I'm really excited today. I've got Nico Dorn and John Ray and Camille uh, Reed. Uh, 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 Nico is our guest today. I'll do a better intro of him in a few minutes. Uh, John Ray is our uh, uh, our co-host today. Uh, he's a really good interviewer. I don't know. You guys that have been listening to this podcast know that I can, uh, I'm fairly articulate about a few things, but I'm not a great interviewer. So, <laughs> but John is, John is good at that. And I'm so glad that you've joined us, uh, John. And uh, we'll, you, we'll give you a chance to talk about Awaken Entrepreneur before we're done here as well. Camille Reed is our programs manager, a, uh, a uh, peer recovery specialist, on and on superstar uh, co-host of this show. And uh, anyway, this is my way of saying welcome, everybody. Good morning. Good afternoon. Thanks for having, Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bob. Uh, so uh, this episode is uh, is uh, going to be Nico's uh, opportunity to kind of tell his story, which is a good one and kind of sets up why he's, uh, uh, you, you know, it's one of those stories that uh, points to, wow, he's an authority. <laughs> he's been there, you know, he can help some people because he's been there. Uh, and I think you guys will really enjoy hearing that. But let uh, Camille, before I do the uh, kind of say a little bit more about Nico and then hand it over to him, would you mind uh, just saying a few things about what's happening here at Deep Waters? Yep. Um, at Deep Waters, we're an advanced and recovery healing experience for men and women. Um, our main thing is a Deep Waters intensive. It's a three-day transformational um, trauma resolution experience that uses psychodrama, bioenergetics, and rituals of empowerment. And then we also have our experiential facilitators training, which is going to be August 20th and 21st. Um, we're enrolling for that right now. And you can learn to train people um, and staff the Deep Waters Intensives, as well as other programs and learn um, your own tools for rituals of empowerment. You can also join our weekly mixed men and women's group um, with Dr. Bear and myself and other colleagues. Um, he also has individual psychotherapy. Um, and if you want to reach out to us about that, we've got our email is admin, A-D-M-I-N at deepwatersrecovery.com. And then you can like, follow, share, subscribe um, on all of our social media channels. Yes. Thank yes. you. And why don't John Ray just say something about Awaken Entrepreneur, just so you can get that plug in there. I think it's important. Thank you. Well, Awaken Entrepreneur is a, a digital marketing agency that I run. And really the purpose is to empower business owners that are purpose-driven in getting their message out to more people. So that there's a lot of different methods that we use to do that. But for anybody that wants to, one, get on message and figure out the language that's going to help them say what they want to say, but two, wants to get that out to more people, uh, you can go to awaken-entrepreneur.com and and I'd love to work with you. Thanks, John. Uh, we are grateful to have you on our team. I'll tell you what, we were just talking about marketing. Oh, <laughs> thank God we got John Ray around here. All right. Because uh, he doesn't do that. Look at him. He smiles when he hears the word sales and marketing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so here's Nico Dorn. We we snagged him with John's help. John helped snag him. Uh, uh, John, uh, Nico is... Um, He's one of those guys in the industry, if you want to refer to this addiction uh, 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 healing world as an industry, I suppose it is. Uh, everybody likes Nico. Just, I'm just, I said that earlier before we started recording, but I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> Maybe it means you're codependent, Nico. I don't know. But uh, actually, it's... Uh, I sure think, it does, but... Uh, yeah, I think you've worked really hard on, uh, on yourself and it shows... He has a master's in human development from Vanderbilt, which I think is somewhere in the southeast North Carolina, right? Asheville, Tennessee. Tennessee. Okay, I knew that. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. he, is, he is the executive director of Alpha 180, uh, uh, not just a unique treatment center, but probably the unique uh, treatment center uh, for uh, a particular age of young men, and it is a tricky bunch of guys to deal with. 
because I've worked with that crowd. I still work with that crowd and I send folks to uh, Alpha 180 uh, because they know that uh, when, when a young man is uh, 17 to 22 or somewhere in that range, I don't know if I have the exact range, but there is a, you better put some adventure in there. You better put something juicy in there and make recovery look attractive. And Nico and his team really know how to do that. Uh, Nico is also a TEDx speaker. Uh, and these days he's pretty focused on creating healthy work environments for his uh, staff. And, um, and uh, he's a husband and father. He's found a way to pull that off. And uh, he actually is one of those guys that if you look at his social media stuff, he, I don't know if it's all paradise and flowers and rainbows and unicorns, but it looks like it. It makes it that whole ceremony look attractive. <laughs> so well, they make me look good. Yeah, man. So, so glad to have you here, uh, Nico. Uh, in this episode, we're going to we're going to probably get a couple of episodes uh, from you. I'm grateful for your time. But today, I think it would be really juicy to just hear your story, uh, your experience, strength, and hope, how you got uh, what what happened, uh, you know, what it was like, what had happened, and what it's like now. And knowing that we'll probably interrupt you <laughs> occasionally and um, want a little more information. Or Anyway, glad you're here, and, and, and the floor is yours, brother. All right. Thank you very much. Um... You know, I think coming into this, uh, Dr. Bob, you're one of those people that's going to pull the truth out of you. So I knew um, I'm going to have to be okay with being uncomfortable. But I actually, I really love that. Um, despite having, uh, you know, the resistance that everyone has to vulnerability, I really try to embrace it in my life. And I think that that's where the healing happens. That's, that's just something that no matter where I go, I can't escape. There's this part of me that I can't not be me, you know? And so like those pieces of me about being a dad and being a young man in recovery and my work being tied to that, I, I just don't know how to live any other way other than being all of that all the time. So I'll do my best to uh, succinctly tell my story, but thank you for being a supporter of Alpha 180 um, and to both Camille and John Ray for helping us spread our message of what we're trying to do. And um, I appreciate you describing it as unique. I love to be unique. I love to be special. Um, and we are trying to do something different with the young men we serve because as you kind of alluded to, uh, young men in early recovery can get a bad rap. They're tough. You know, it's a tough demographic. They have a lot of needs. Uh, but I always think of it as that's the coolest, the coolest group of people to work with because the the transformation that someone is capable of at that stage of life is so profound. Like they can really go from, you know, just really struggling child to realized young adult with this passion and excitement. Um, and that's what we're all about. So going into my story, um, I, I, I guess I'll start with, I was born in the Netherlands um, to a Dutch father and North Carolinian mother. And my mom uh, was studying abroad in Europe and met my dad in a bar. And I think of that as this kind of romantic uh, coming together thing. And, but the romance didn't last very long. And um, I was born, but they weren't uh, very happy with each other. So they tried marriage, but got divorced quickly. Um, and I think, you know, for people in addiction recovery are kind of looking for ways that they're different. And so for me, the thing that made me different was this cultural dichotomy of having um, a European dad and an American mom. And I was at, by this time growing up in North Carolina. And so my dad spoke this other language and he, um, you know, would, you know, speak to me in Dutch around my friends. And I, and I just was kind of confused with like, where do I fit in? And, and as I mentioned, my parents were divorced. So I was bouncing between these houses and, you know, um, I've been told not to make excuses for my parents anymore. And so the truth is like, it was a pretty rough childhood in terms of not much stability. Um, you know, there was love there, but, uh, they just weren't that stable in themselves yet. And so I can remember kind of being in the middle of, um, their anger at each other and being kind of the message carrier between them as a six and seven year old. Um, uh, my dad had a lot of anger issues, which occasionally got directed at me. Um, and my mom kind of became the safe one. And so 
I gravitated towards her, but in hindsight, uh, she, you know, probably got a little overly close and would kind of share with me personal things about her life. And so, you know, that really planted this seed early on of being kind of a caretaker. Um, and, you know, my whole life, like to this day, I get told like, you know, you're an old soul or you seem wise for your age, um, you know, things like that. And, and it's a compliment, of course, but what that kind of means is like, you've had to take on stuff beyond your age for a really long time. Um, and so, you That's know, of really, course I didn't. Such a good insight, Nico. You're so beautiful. I'm, I'm serious. I hope people are listening to the, the way that you just framed all that because there's not a blame in it. You're not blaming your family and you're not letting them off the hook, but we have to look at that stuff because it forms the way we do our lives. Right. And it takes us out of living authentically, but man, I just love the way you framed that. Well, you know, the good news and the bad news is we're going to develop patterns and keep doing it our whole life. And so I've had to realize like, this is my strength and it can be my pitfall. So I still have mm -hmm. to watch that today. Like, you know, with codependency and, and a desire to please and perfectionism and things like that. So I, I still am looking at that, but that's kind of where those seeds got planted. Um, I was, uh, I was a good student. Um, I'm an only child. So I got, I got a lot of attention, <laughs> uh, but also um, when you're an only child, what I've noticed is that the adults kind of they have more of an adult experience, but there happens to be a kid there. Whereas there's a handful of kids, it's a kid experience where there happen to be adults there. Mm. And so I, I grew up, you know, it was quiet in the house and, you know, don't be too loud and, you know, don't be too crazy. And so if, for those of you that know me, I'm not loud and crazy. I'm contained, mm -hmm. I'm chill. Um, and I've been that way for a long time. Uh, but I was a happy kid. And um, I would say by the time I hit, you know, maybe middle school, um, going into high school, you start being aware of how your family might be different from other people's families. Um, and I started kind of comparing and contrasting and feeling like, you know, I don't, I don't like my situation all that much. I don't like having these divorced parents. I don't like having to go back and forth between their houses, you know? Um, and so I just started feeling really different and long story short, that led me to, depression and I had my first kind of clinical uh run in by about 11 12 years old with with therapy and starting to get some some labels and some diagnoses and I could go into detail but the long and short of it is that got bad quickly um and by high school I what had been you know hospitalized for feeling suicidal a couple of times I had been in and out of therapy quite a bit um, and so I found, uh, drugs and alcohol. My first true memory of it was the very first day of ninth grade. Um, and I don't know if this sounds crazy, but I very much remember going home after using uh, substance for the first time on the first day of ninth grade and having the conscious thought, this will help me with my depression. Like this made me feel better. I like this. I'm going to keep doing this. Like very conscious self-medication. I didn't know what that was, but it wasn't something where I was like, oh, that was a fun party. It was like, no, I'm going to use this to change the way that I feel from the beginning. Hmm. Um, and the great thing about substances in high school is that they connect you to a friend group because you have something to do with them. And there's, you know, they teach you like, these are the bands we listen to. We listen to Bob Marley and Sublime and you know fish or whatever you know like here's the music we listen to we wear tie-dye shirts um and we're different and we're together in our being different and so I was just primed to fall right into that crowd um because it made me cool it made me liked and I didn't have to think too hard about who I was going to be I just I just took on that persona and um unfortunately uh that didn't make my, you know, mental health challenges go away. Um, and so I still was kind of battling that and my substance use progressed. And along with that, the depression and anxiety progressed as well. Because the, um, medica the medication works for a bit, right? We all know that. It's like, it, it, here's the solution until it's not. 
right? Exactly. And, uh, exactly. Camille, you guys are probably somewhere around the same age. Were you a fish? Are you a fisher? Are you a fish <laughs> aficionado? We're like sublime and ah. Marley. Okay. Same. Yeah. To that story and feeling I, my same exact thing. Like it was the last day of eighth grade was the first time I tried a substance and I was like, seems like this is the answer to all my problems. So why not keep going with that? Yeah. But it progressed, right? And then it started to not work. Nico? Starts to not work, but that doesn't mean I'm going to not keep trying for a little <laughs> bit longer. Um, but what happened to me was um, I showed up to the fourth day of 10th grade. I guess I would have been 16 or so. Um, and I had some substances in my backpack and I got in trouble for it and I got asked to leave the school. And I never went back to high school after that. So Good boy, Nico got kicked out of school. I like the way you frame it. I was asked nicely to remove myself from the school. You got kicked right. out of school. An alternative path that we're going to present you with that yeah. includes, <laughs> includes you leaving. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I would have acted like I didn't care, but deep down, I re that really hurt. You know, like I, I internalized this kind of failure thing with that and that was the first like you know my substance use is catching up to me um speeding up just a little i uh i found myself um a teen parent not too long after that and this was a turning point in my life i had met someone that at the time i really cared about um and uh she got pregnant and i absolutely was going to be a good dad to this little guy um and my son was born uh, when I was 17 years old. And I proceeded to try to do everything I could to be a good dad. So I, I got the full-time job. I got an apartment. Um, we had this baby and, and we were going to try to do everything right. And, you know, what happens with addiction is it catches up to you and it takes away the things that you care about uh, one by one. And so, you know, we, we lost him uh, custody. Uh, my substance use progressed. I won't get into the details, but it got gnarly. Um, and a few years into his life, I was back in treatment again. This time, however, I was ready, 100% ready to make that change. I'd had enough. And, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of people like to point out getting sober young, like if I would have just gotten sober when I was your age, I would have missed all this pain. And I'm like, I didn't miss any pain, bro. Like, you, <laughs> I mean, it was bad. And it, it's, I kind of have a chip on my shoulder about people pointing that out now. Cause I'm like, you know, my kid got taken away. I, I was hospitalized nearly every month. I had been in and out of treatment centers. I tried to kill myself. Mm. Um, it was bad enough for me just cause I didn't take an extra 10 years to get there. Um, and when I landed in treatment, I was excited, man. I was ready to make the change. Um, I, like I mentioned to you, I've always been someone that cares about people and I really wanted to be a good dad to my son and that, that became my fuel. So I went to a treatment center that it exposed me to the 12 steps. Um, and on Friday nights, they would do a meeting where, um, alumni would come back and they would lead the meeting and there would be no staff in the room. And I shared about, you know, trying to get my son back and I don't know what to do. And I, should I go to sober living? Should I stay here? Um, and I shared that. And then the following week, the same guy that had come the Friday before came back again. And he asked me, how's it going with your son? Do you think you're going to go to sober living? What do you think you're going to do? And I was so blown away by the fact that someone remembered something I said and cared enough to ask me how it was going and cared about my mm -hmm. life, a stranger, um, that I was just like, man, this is, this is cool. This guy seems happy. This guy seems to genuinely care about me in a way that I haven't been getting from the people that I've been hanging out with. Um, and so I decided to move to Nashville, Tennessee, um, and do the sober living thing. And, and I just embraced 12 step recovery. And I think what I found there was a sense of community, um, sense of friendship. It, you know, I, I hung out with those people, um, and I even had like a sense of pride. And, you know, when I had 30 days, I had more than the guy with 28 days. And when I had a year, I had more than the guy with nine months. And like, I felt a healthy sense of um, self-esteem. Yeah. So um, 
that process changed my life. Absolutely. Um, it says, it really uh, says so really says something about it. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, try to be a good copy of the big book? Have you ever heard that Nico? I haven't heard it, but that well, for, for, for anybody that's listening, the big book is the text of Alcoholics Anonymous. And actually most of the text of all 12 step recoveries has roots in that, in that text. And an old timer one time told me, you know, I just try to be a good, I try to present the program. Well, I try to look good, you know, like it's a good thing to come toward, you know what I mean? And, the, and it's like the guy that came back and was and loved had enough free attention within himself to remember a little bit of your story was so huge for you, you know, and, and just the compassion that you have for the, those young guys that you work with. It's like, you're paying it forward. I think you're like a good copy of the big book. That's my, that's, that's the point I was making. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I think, you know, it's, it's a small percentage of people that do a lot of the work in the rooms of recovery and thank God for those people like showing oh, yeah. up on a Friday night at a treatment center, um, inviting me to their house to watch football, even when I couldn't care less about football at the time, you know, like just making me feel a part of when I didn't know what to do. Um, it is a small, but, it is a small percentage too. And it's a, you know, the, the amount of people that recover anywhere is a fairly small percentage. There's a higher percentage in 12 step recovery though it's like there aren't very many clinical interventions that uh, come even close to the, uh, for people that actually work the program. And my guess is you were a good student. You, uh, yeah. I was, I'm trying, I'm trying to stay one. I was probably a better one then. My things evolve over time, but at the end of the day, like that foundation was, I credit that with everything else that I've gotten since. And, um, you know, what what was going on in my life though is I was uh, you know washing cars at a detailing company in Nashville Tennessee I had not gotten custody of my son back I was working on that uh, his biological mother had um, already relapsed and left the picture and so you know as well as my sobriety was going I didn't know what I was going to do with my life um, and the guy that I was living with heard about this program at Texas Tech for young people mm. that can help you go back to college if you're in recovery. And so I didn't really know what any of that meant, especially combining those words in the same sentence was like college recovery, Texas, you know, um, <laughs> and, but he was going to go check it out. And so um, I decided to check it out with him and found myself, this was 2010 or uh, 2011, um, on a plane to Lubbock, uh, Texas. If anyone's been there, it's kind of like flying into Saudi Arabia or something. Yeah. Um, and with, uh, this, with this giant school, with, with giant school. incredibly unique uh, programs. I mean, they have a theater program that's spectacular there. They, and this this recovery program is the biggest and most organized uh, of any, right? I did not know you were an alumni of that program, Nico. Wow. Say Make sure you tell folks a little bit about that too. Sure. So there are a few colleges around the country that have support services specifically for students in recovery. Texas Tech's program has been in existence for over 35 years. And like uh, Bob said, it's one of the most developed. So uh, I think there's now about 150 students in recovery and most of them would not have been able to get into Texas Tech without it. Um, they're able to override the admissions process, and yet those students have the highest average GPA of any student organization on campus. So wow. they're, the students that couldn't get into the school have the highest GPA. Um, and so anyways, I, I went there and walked into this building. There's a building on campus, um, and I met the director, uh, her name, former director, Dr. Kitty Harris, and I told her my story, and I said, you know, I'm living in Nashville. I've you know, I, I, I'm thinking about getting an apartment. I'm making $12 an hour. Things are going pretty well. I'm going to get my son back pretty soon. And she heard that and just said, you know, you need, you can go to college. Like, don't write yourself off so soon. Like there's a path. Cause I just thought there's no way, like mm. I'm here to, I'm here to visit for my friends. There's no way. Mm. Um, and when she said that to me, I just, I started to believe in this recovery process a little more deeply than I had before. Like, Oh, not only can these things happen, but these things that I thought were impossible can happen too. 
Mm. And I went home and I, I took the GED test. I applied um, to this program and I got in and, and I moved to Lubbock, Texas and um, started my college career. Uh, I had an outstanding experience. Like it was amazing. Um, but I really wanted to get my son back and I felt like Nashville was the right place to raise him. And so um, he was uh, almost four. And so I moved back to Nashville. Um, I had already started working in the treatment industry by this time. Um, and I got a job at the treatment center that I went to and was going to college uh, during the day. So I was working at the treatment center, going to college, and I was a full-time dad to my um, preschooler. And I was 23, I guess, at the time. And I can pretty much sum up the next seven years of my story as a version of that. I was I, I went to college uh, and then graduate school. I was working. Um, I did everything from, you know, a direct care tech, was a counselor, um, some business development stuff. I started a sober living program. And then at Vanderbilt, we developed a collegiate recovery program, much like Texas Tech. So when I was going to school there, I was working with the university to set up um, and develop services for their students as well. Um, it was, you know, I, I, I buzzed through that, um, but truth be told, it, it was a very challenging time. Um, I was balancing a lot of things and thank God I had a lot of people in my life that helped me. My family helped me, people and literally people in recovery. I mean, I can remember the first year that I had my son back, um, we, it was going to be his birthday. Um, and the same guy that I mentioned from the Friday night meeting at the treatment center, he and his girlfriend paid so that uh, we could throw a birthday party for my son mm -hmm. in Centennial Park and they got the cake and they got the decorations. Um, wow. And so those, those people were my family, you know, and there's mm -hmm. a lot more of them. Um, but that's where we started. And then over the years, my career evolved and uh, I got real, I just got really passionate about young adult recovery and specifically collegiate recovery because, you know, traditionally um, in treatment centers and in the rooms, uh, the 12 step rooms, they kind of tell you like, don't worry about the future, you know, don't make any major decisions. They tell young people a lot of times, like, don't go back to school yet, worry about that later. Um, and that's what I was told, you know, and, and, and that's true. You know, there's a period of time where you just need to focus on your recovery. But the problem was they didn't back that up with the plan for next steps, you know, and I, so I started feeling like young people need this path, you know, they need to know that these resources like Texas Tech are out there. They need someone just telling them, like, you don't, you might not be ready to go back to school yet, but you can if you want to. Like, you are capable of this. I believe in you. Um, there are other people in the world doing it because it, in my mind, no one is doing it. Like, there's no sober people at college. You know, there's no, especially for a 10th grade dropout. Um, and so anyways, that's became kind of my mission in life is uh to make sure that young people not only can get sober, but have inspired recovery. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe in doing that through communities, you know? So this thing at Texas Tech, we'll use that as an example. Um, it's not made of rules. It's not filled with clinicians. It's a group of young people that happen to be sober and they have support services. They have meetings, they have advisors they can talk to. They have a shared space they can use, but it's self-governed in a lot of ways. Um, and so I wanted to bring that concept um, into uh, developing a program like Alpha 180, which is, you know, we provide this framework and these services and all this structure around them, but ultimately like they are the ones that have to buy into it and believe in it because young people can see right through the BS, especially. Um, <laughs> And so I just, I just pondered on this concept for years, like, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly who the audience is, but for those that work in treatment, you'll know, like, there are, um, as a clinician, you'll get a group of, of, of patients, and sometimes it seems like they're all just doing great, right? Like, they're all buying in, they love each other, they're helping each other, and other times you'll get a group, it just seems like they all just, you know, 
don't show up on time, fighting the rules. So I was like, well, why is it that they seem to get better together or not better? I mean, same demographic, same age, same drug of choice. So it must be something about the environment that we're creating. There must be something internally between this group of people that's making them want to get better together. And so I thought, you know, if we can create a program where doing the right thing is cool, we're caring about each other is cool, where, you know, um, embracing recovery and having fun and pursuing school and, you know, all these healthy things, if we can create positive peer pressure around those behaviors, then it's not coming from staff anymore. Now it's coming from within and then it becomes yeah. real. Cause we um, will all gather around something exciting. Won't we? We're going to find something and it's either going to be creative or destructive. <laughs> it's the same juice. Right. And I have to have somebody stay, like showing me that, uh, that uh, like recovery can be cool. I mean, it's, it's gotta be a little irreverent too. We gotta be willing to see there's a clinical thing where we have, there's a, it's implied that the shadow Carl, Dr. Carl Jung's idea of the shadow, right. The darker part of us, I mean, that we've got to be really nice and we can't, you get in an environment where, where a bunch of young guys can't be irreverent. You're not going to keep them very long because they're built to break the rules, right? You got to give them some space to break the rules. We have a, we have a, a core tenant at Alpha 180, which is to get in trouble safely. Exactly. We have to give them an outlet for that need to push back. Like if you're expecting someone to embrace recovery and they can't push the rules, like good luck, you know, like that's a <laughs> developmental need and it's a human need. Um, so anyways, um, this is, I guess, to shift gears a little bit. I, I feel like all of that, that education and those, those different paths of my career kind of built me up for this opportunity to start the program where I work now. And um, I met our founder, who's a guy named Bob Ferguson. Um, he's somebody that I've looked up to a lot, kind of a figurehead in the, in the treatment industry, someone that I see as very ethical, and very principled. And um, he came to me and he said, uh, you know, I've got this idea for a collegiate recovery thing, and I just wanted to see what you would think. And at that time, I was um, working for a university, and I really felt like, you know, the treatment industry screws everything up. The way to do it is through a school. And he described this concept to me, and I said, oh, so, so you want to privatize collegiate recovery? Uh, you know, you want to profit on this thing that was given to me for free? And he said, no, 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 no. Um, the, there's some issues with collegiate recovery. And one of the main ones is that in order to get into a program like Texas Tech, you have to have at least a year sober. Um, and so that's the case with a lot of collegiate recovery. So there's all these people prior to getting there that don't even know that it exists, that need a lot of support before they're ready. And so we developed basically a platform that helps somebody go from day one of getting out of a residential treatment center to being a college student that's, or, or doesn't have to be a college student, but ready to kind of launch into that next step. Um, and so I moved to Austin, Texas um, in 2017, and we found this uh, awesome old fraternity house, um, remodeled it. It's just a couple of blocks away from the University of Texas. Um, got it licensed for outpatient treatment and basically created, you know, something that has all the support services of a counseling center and, and outpatient treatment center, but it feels like, um, feels like home, you know, it feels like walking into a big den and, you know, these guys can just feel comfortable and, and be themselves, uh, you know, big couches and TVs and things like that. So making sure that it was just this welcoming environment for them, um, so that they would feel like this recovery thing is cool. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to comment on that I, that I heard Dr. Bear say ab about the, this guy that first came to you and kind of held space for you and, and remembered something about you. And, and uh, Dr. Bob called that he, he had enough free attention to be able to give you some, some of his attention. And one of the things that I think is so 
you know, important in, in any recovery program is that people are doing the work enough where that free attention is available be, because it's really easy to, to be theoretical about what people should do. But if, if that capacity to model behavior and actually hold that space in, in a way where some, someone can see a possibility that maybe is outside of their current decision space, you know, that, that's really one the things that I think is most valuable about a recovery program is that, you know, you, by your own admission, Nico, had this idea that you couldn't go back to college and, and somebody held space for a possibility that was bigger than you could find for yourself. And I really think that that Alpha 180 and, and programs like it, you know, that that's part of the big advantage is opening up capacity for what could be possible for someone and and then showcasing a, a level of competence that isn't reliant on substances or codependency or anything like that. So I just wanted to comment because I felt like that was such a good way of describing what it means to hold space for something. It, it's doing the work enough where there's free attention that you can lend to somebody else. I, I Another way I would conceptualize that is just giving people hope, you know, mm -hmm. like I think um, and I've said, I think about it this way with, we talk about spiritual principles like honesty and open-mindedness and willingness. And, and I just don't think there's any point in being open-minded and willing unless you have a little hope. So, um, people that, you know, just made me feel good about myself and kind of showed me like there is this brighter future. It didn't even matter that I had no idea what the future held. It just, the idea that it could be better was enough to make me want to take the next step and so you know that's this lived thing that you can't really put your finger on it's just a way that you make people feel um but it's pivotal you know it's pivotal for somebody embracing recovery do you tell do you tell uh clients because you work with i know you're the uh executive director or clin clinical director over there or both you're both right now executive no oh, we yeah. have an excellent clinical director that's not me right right do you uh um do you have much client contact? Well, the question is, do you share some of your story with these young guys? Cause it's, I'm inspired and I'm old. <laughs> um, I definitely do. I have a lot to do with guys um, coming into the program and a little bit less once they're here, I see yeah. them every day. I check in with them and they bring me in to tell my story um, from time to time. But you know, like something I'm grappling with is like, they're, 13 years younger than me now it's like you're I old. totally, you're old. I totally feel like one of them but um but now there's some uh there's some distance there but um but yeah absolutely I, I mean I take them out to lunch it's the habit I try to keep is uh taking everybody out to lunch at least once and having a conversation just about this just about right. a vision for your life if you haven't heard it yet you can do it I believe in you and just making sure they hear that over and over see there's there's nothing more inspiring than vulnerability to me. I mean, to me, that's the ultimate, ultimate uh, uh, value in leadership. And it's kind of flies in the face of a lot of leadership models, right? We're supposed to have it all together and be the king who's like sitting up. But actually the things that inspire me, uh, I've been inspired by hearing your story. It's like, where are we going, Nico? Okay, I'm following <laughs> you, brother. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, and, uh, you know, I, I, I love clinicians like you who, who model this for other clinicians. It's okay to be real. In fact, it's more than okay. It's required. In fact, if you're not going to be vulnerable, go sell shoes. All right. Enough. Don't get me started. Uh, yeah, so, I as, so I, I bet that also translates to relationships, uh, which is, uh, that's my way of helping you transition here. We pro uh, to because uh, I think you're doing the family thing and pulling that one off pretty good too. Would you say something about that as we sort of move toward the end here? Yeah, thank you so much for making that transition because I was going to try to make that too because I <laughs> have to thank my amazing wife <laughs> and my um, my older son. I have two sons now, and so one of them is uh, learning how to walk, and the other one is going to high school. But um, he's at you know my older son was with me every step of this process, you know, like I was, it was Aiden and I, um, and we grew up together and that was my mm. fuel and my fire. And, and, you know, this kid, um, 
I got, I'll try to tell this story quickly, but this kid has grown up around recovery, right? So he's literally probably some inappropriate rooms of young guys in early recovery um, <laughs> as a little kid getting dragged around. But um, he, uh, he came to me the other day um, and he had been getting in a little bit of trouble, you know, here and there, just little white lies, little things like that. Um, and we had pointed out to him that, you know, maybe it could be the people you're hanging out with, you know, have you thought about that? And uh, we can just see some changes. And so he said, uh, he came home a couple of weeks after talking about that and said, I've decided to start sitting at a different table at lunch. And I thought, That's kind of a big deal at that age, right? And I said, okay, mm -hmm. you know, why'd you do that? And he said, well, you know, my other friend, I've noticed him, he's hanging out with this same group of guys. And I've noticed that he started acting a little bit differently. And I thought, you know, if my friend is starting to act a little bit differently by hanging out with these people and he can't see it, maybe I'm acting a little bit differently by hanging out with them and I can't see it either. So I'm going to hang out with some other people. Mm. Um, wow. And uh, I mean, that is recovery at work to me. Like I had nothing to do with that. You know, he's just been around people trying to get better and look at themselves yeah. and hopefully it's rubbing off. So, so anyways, that's him. And then, um, you know, as you can imagine, or as you know, you've seen it firsthand, my, uh, my job's not all rainbows and butterflies. Uh, it's challenging. And so I have an excellent person at home to let me process at the end of every difficult day. Um, Cause being the guy, everything from how the business is run to, you know, what's going on in the houses to making sure the parents are happy uh, ultimately stops with me. And so I'm trying to do a good job at all of those things. And I have an amazing wife who supports me in that and, um, you know, just wants me to do with my life what I feel like I'm meant to do. Um, and so I have to thank her as well. Yeah. Okay, Nico Dorn. <clears throat> You're like a good NASCAR driver. You got to thank the team, right? <laughs> Absolutely. All, everybody, it's a, it's a good team behind me. I couldn't do it without them. 100% true. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, the Nico Dorn story, I'm still like, uh, I'm just warm inside. Thank you for sharing that with us, Nico. Um, My pleasure. Let, let's, uh, and we're going to get you back next week, those of you listening to this we're, we're uh actually john ray is going to interview nico more deeply on this on a couple of different topics that we touched on here today uh but <clears throat> before we end today let's do something fun i'm going to throw out a couple of questions and we're each going to uh you can answer it right so here's two questions a bumper sticker or a quote that has meaning for you right and also your definition of vulnerability right or, or what or or what does vulnerability mean to you? That's a, maybe a better way to say. It. So I'll start. Uh, my uh, the bumper sticker that came to mind to me was uh, Jesus save me from your followers, and uh, it's uh, it has to do with dogma and shit. You know, I, there's so there, in the Big Book of AA it says be quick to take uh, to listen to people to to religious people, which at first glance I say, are you kidding? But on second glance, there's some beauty in there um, that if I can see through the human mirage that we put on top of, uh, of that, uh, some, sometimes there's some beauty. Um, but in the hands of some superficial followers, it's not, it's not a message I'm, list, uh, I'm eager to listen to. Uh, and my definition or, or, or the vulnerability is mean, the meaning... Uh, is the vulner uh, the meaning of it for me has to do with uh, has to do with uh, inspiration. Uh, I get inspired by people that uh, can let down the armor and uh, and uh, and I'm just too old to carry the armor anymore. So I'm just going to choose to crack wide open whenever I felt I, I cracked a little bit when you're talking about your son a minute ago, Nico. So uh, that's th so that's how I'm answering those questions today next I'll, I'll go um so my favorite quote is everything we know is subject to revision especially what we know about the truth mm -hmm. um it's uh it's from the narcotics anonymous basic text uh -huh. and i just i just it pops into my head every once in a while because i'm pretty convinced that what goes through my head is true and it's going to stay the same 
And if I'm, you know, if I'm upset with someone, it's going to stay that way. Or, you know, if I'm struggling with something, it's going to stay that way. And I have enough evidence to know that anything can change at any time. And I'm not right about much. So um, I love that quote. And uh, vulnerability to me is as simple as um, the way that I'm feeling on the inside, matching up with what I'm saying and doing on the outside. Um, Mm. You know, I, I strive to be just an integrated person where, you know, how you see me is how I really am. And I do okay at that most of the time, but sometimes I get afraid to show like what's really going on inside or the insecurities. And so vulnerability to me is just, uh, just being willing to put out what's really going on inside. Mm. Well said. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go. Um, bumper sticker. Um, which it's got definitely a little Forrest Gump vibe to it is shit happens. Um, I like to complicate things and turn them into like these large extravagant quotes that I can like think about and roll around in my head and overthink and overanalyze. Um, But I was talking to somebody the other day and I basically said, you know, like these things do happen and I just, am going to keep moving and keep rolling with it and just have in my head, like, crazy things happen, like even more now that I'm in recovery than before that just blow my mind. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to do with that? Like, let's keep going. Um, and then vulnerability for me, I think is freedom. Um, it's a lot of freedom to be myself, freedom to allow others to be themselves. Um, and it just, it's infectious, like the more vulnerable, that I can be the more space I can give for somebody else to express themselves in ways that they've never felt comfortable doing. And just being that person that can mirror, um, vulnerable vulnerability for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Nice. I think bumper sticker for me continues to be feel every feeling. Um, and it ties into vulnerability be, in that I, I feel that that vulnerability is a willingness to feel the icky feelings um, in, instead of projecting them forward. You know, in my own life, I know that if I'm telling a lie, it's usually because the lie ma- makes me feel more comfortable temporarily than, than I think telling the truth would be. And so if I have a willingness to just be temporarily uncomfortable, I can state my truth instead of having to, st- to state a lie. And, and it allows me to hold space better and, and show up in a, a more honest and vivid way. And, and yeah, it's something that I continue to work on, but, but to tuning into, okay, some, sometimes there are going to be uncomfortable feelings. And, and if I can find alignment with that discomfort, if I can recognize that that's part of the healing process is to go into the discomfort, release it. And then on the other side, there's this new potential that mm-hmm. that's been an important way for me to visualize kind of the narrative arc of vulnerability be because it makes me want to go there more often be because I can see that there's a light at the end of that tunnel and that through every uncomfortable feeling really is a capacity that allows me to help myself and and those around me in a larger way yeah wow really well said that that's a whole pot we could have done a whole podcast just on those that question right there uh there's uh um I want to respond to that just a little bit, John, because it's related to what Nico had said earlier. If we're, so we were, we're the masters of avoiding feelings. I mean, right here on this screen, we have long-term evidence that we are the best at it, right? And then it stopped working. And then we became the best at feeling and learning. And, and I, I don't like the way you phrase it, like, uh, 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 tolerance for discomfort. I don't want any discomfort. <laughs> but anyway, I I love the way you put it, actually. Uh, but there's a part of me that doesn't, right? But what happens is I, I learn how to sit with the discomfort and wind up being one of these people that Nico was referring to with the highest grade point average uh, 
of any group at Texas Tech. To me, that that blows me away. It te- it co- it tells me what I've always said in recovery. It's the most creative, intelligent group of folks I have ever known. It's the exact opposite of what kind of the world thinks about us. I think I don't know. Get back to me on that. But uh, all right, great little discussion here. This one was fun. I uh, really appreciate you guys. Okay, so Nico, why don't you uh, let folks know how they can get a hold of you, where you are, and uh, go for it. Sure, and so I, I talked about what Alpha 180 is in concept, but what is it actually? It's a transitional living program and outpatient treatment center for young men right here in downtown Austin. Uh, you can find more at www.alpha180.com. And my email is just N-I-C-O, Nico, at alpha180.com for anyone that would like to speak directly. So Nice. John Ray, one more uh, little shot about what you're up to in the world and how you can be reached. Yeah, I just help people uh, put words to what's in their heart. So if you've got something that you want to say to the world but are have, having trouble uh, finding the, the linear language to do it, uh, reach out at awaken-entrepreneur.com and I, I'd love to guide you through that process. Awaken-entrepreneur.com. Okay. And Camille, what are we doing here? Remind me, what are we up to here at Deep Waters? We've got our next experiential facilitators training August 20th and 21st. Um, and then we've got the DWI Deep Waters Intensive, which is going to be later this fall. Um, you can find all the event information on deepwatersrecovery.com or shoot us an email at admin at deepwatersrecovery or on Facebook or wherever you'll find us. All right. Good, uh, good time with you folks. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, John, Nico, Camille, and everyone who's listening, uh, you're in the deep waters now.